Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Hello, 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 hello. Uh, we're very excited today because we're on the eve of battle at Jutland, aren't we? And with me, I have lovely Gary Bain. Hello, Gary. Hello, Peter Hart. Just in case anybody didn't know who you were. Oh, well, I'm not very good at introducing things. And you've written a song in honour of uh, of the, the this, 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 this podcast. Would you like to sing it for me? Oh, you mean uh, take me up the Jutland and tell me that you love me? Take me up the Jetland and tell me that you love me. It has a certain ring about it, doesn't it? That's really poor. It is. Right. Now, uh, so so this is the eve of battle. We've had two episodes already, one giving the overall naval race sort of type situation and one looking at the uh, what happened during the first two years of the war. Um, we left it at a sort of intriguing moment, didn't we? You were quite excited, weren't you? Yeah, I mean, we left it where the uh, German high seas fleet changed their commander and Admiral von Pohl was uh, moved to one side and was replaced by Admiral Reinhard Scheer on the 24th of January 1916. Want to give us a bit of background to this Augusta commander? Uh, no. No. I will then. <laughs> well, he joined the German Navy as a cadet in uh, uh, 1879. That's a long time ago, isn't it, Gary? Uh, and his early career wasn't outstanding, but still steadily promoted uh, until he did really well in charge of a torpedo flotilla in around 1900. He then, you know, gets accelerated promotion. Uh, he becomes Capitan Sur Sea. Sea Captain? Sea Captain. Oh, Right, on the, in 1905, and he just keeps on rising and becomes Chief of Staff of the High Seas Fleet. Uh, at the outbreak of war, what is he then? Go on, you're going to help me there. What, what was he at the outbreak of the war? Well, he's the Admiral in command of the pre-Dreadnoughts of the 2nd Battle Squadron, and subsequently he commanded the Dreadnoughts of the 3rd Battle Squadron. Now, Shear brought a fresh mind and a good deal more vigour to the problem of finding a real role for the High Seas Fleet. Yeah. Yeah, they're a fleet in being and, and a risk fleet. We've discussed both those yep. things. But uh, he wants to do more. So what does he say? And this is Admiral Reinhard Scheer of, uh, at that time, the SMS Freud, Frederick de Gross, Frederick the Great. Ooh. And this is what he says. Oh, Gary the Great. England's purpose of strangling Germany economically without seriously exposing her own fleet to the German guns had to be defeated. This offensive effort on our part was intensified by the fact that the prohibition of the U-boat trade war made it impossible for us to aim a direct blow at England's vital nerve. We were therefore bound to try and prove by all possible means that Germany's high seas fleet was able and willing to wage war with England at sea. Now, he, he realises that in a straight battle, all the ground fleet versus the high seas fleet, they're going to get mullered to use a highly technical term. So what does he try and do? What, how does he try and achieve his ends? What's he going to do? Well, he tries to provoke the Admiralty Angelico into rash action by applying a policy of systematic and constant pressure across the whole gamut of naval warfare. So this means he, he, wants, to, he wants submarines and mines to play their part, but he wants to send the high seas fleet out on active sorties. 
Uh, so what's he trying to do? Well, he intends to seize upon the confusion of action to attain a temporary local superiority, which once more we've discussed in previous we podcasts, uh, that if vigorously exploited could erode the ever-increasing British superiority in bald numbers. Yeah, the overall numbers. Uh, so how does he raise the sort of lazy tempo of, uh, of, of, of naval war that had existed up till then, well, certainly, the, you know, most of 1915. So what does he do? Well, in February, uh, a destroyer sweep was launched across the Dogger Bank. Then in March, a boulder sweep south of the whole high seas fleet to attempt, they're trying to entrap British light forces in the area of Lowestoft. Doesn't really work, but he's trying. Now, later the same month, when the British launched a seaplane carrier attack supported by the Harwich Force... They're with, the destroyers, we've mentioned them, yeah. ...with Beatty in close support, Shear once more emerged to try to catch Beatty, although the rough weather, rough weather rough caused weather. him to, <laughs> to abort the operation. Yes, he was very posh. The rough weather. <laughs> now, uh, what next? What next? What next? What next? Does he... Any- well, he next tries a return to the hit-and-run tactics employed by Ingenol in 1914. Now, you'll remember Ingenol was responsible for the Scarborough and Hartlepool raids. We remember that. And the high seas left port on the 24th of April. Now, once more, the activities of... Shh, room 40. Shh, Gary. Gave advance warning to Jellicoe. We do, now, just in case people listen, they've not heard the others. Room 40 uh, was, uh, they, they were decoding the German signals and they're helped by a directional wireless station along the East Coast. They, they could follow what was happening. So that's just in case you missed the previous episodes. So what happened? Well, in the events, uh, severe weather hampered the Grand Fleet and it was left to the Harwich Force alone to harass the German battlecruisers as they bombarded first Lowestoft and then briefly Yarmouth. Now, how did the British public uh, react? Uh, are they phlegmatic uh, and uh, uncomplaining, uh, much like yourself? Absolutely. The British public renewed their outcry. Where was the Navy? Jellicoe came under increasing pressure to adopt a more active offensive policy with the Grand Fleet to try to force the Germans to come out and fight. Now, I can't see that working. He's not really that kind of man. Uh, he won't abandon the established strategically successful policy out of some, well, what would you call it? A vague sense of boredom, perhaps? And a desire, of course, for change. No, it's working that the Germans are not going to win the war by landing a few shells on the British East Coast. Uh, In fact, it might actually improve places like Sunderland, if you think about it. Certainly Yarmouth. Yarmouth, yeah. A few shells would do a world of good. But the Royal Navy could lose it if it lost control of the world's oceans. Therefore, his policy remained rooted in caution. And this is Admiral Sir John Jellicoe of HMS Iron Duke. It is not, in my opinion, wise to risk unduly the heavy ships of the Grand Fleet in an attempt to hasten the end of the, gra- of the High Seas Fleet, particularly if the risks come not from the High Seas Fleet itself, but from mines and submarines. <laughs> There is no doubt that provided there is a chance of destroying some of the enemy's heavy ships, it is right and proper to run risks with our own. But unless the chances are reasonably great, I do not think that such risks should be run, seeing that any real disaster to our heavy ships lays the country open to invasion. And and it it, it leaves the the BEF marooned. It's a disaster. Now, Jellicoe was also required to explain once more why he preferred to stay at Scarpa Flow, too far north to intercept hit-and-run raids on the east coast. Could he not move the Grand Fleet further south, down to the Firth of the Forth, or even into the Humber? Well, no, <laughs> he couldn't. Is it, is it, I mean, it's just bloody stupidity. He, he refuses to budge. He, he, he accepts that strategically Rosyth is better than Scamper Flow. Uh, but what doesn't, what, what's the problem with Rosyth? Well, he points out that there's a lack of secure anchorage space and, of course, the prevailing foggy weather. Vulnerability of the exits to German submarine mining operations. They could block you in, basically. And the crucial general absence of adequate submarine defences. And that all made the move to Rosyth an impractical and dangerous suggestion. Yeah, only when the area, well, can you picture it, east of the fourth bridge? It's funny to think it was still there then, isn't it? Even only when that had been made secure from submarines would the Grand Fleet consider moving there. So that's not then. Uh, However, as a SOP, he agreed to relocate the obsolete 
pre-dreadnoughts of the third battle squadron to Sheerness yeah. to act as an added deterrent and general support to the Harwich force with the overall objective of forcing Sheer to bring his heavy ships on any raid. Oh, I can see that. Um, they're, they're, they're not really needed in the Grand Fleet. The numbers have, have been growing of dreadnoughts and, uh, and it, there's something else has arrived that makes a real difference to the power of the, uh, of the Grand Fleet. What's that? Well, I think you're referring to the, uh, the much-vaunted Queen Elizabeth class. Now, they were the first super dreadnoughts, and that's the next stage in the battleship revolution. They've got eight mighty 15-inch guns, and they could project a a shell that weighs 1,950 pounds. That's about the same as you, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, Up to 30,000 yards. 35,000 yards, Pete. Let's be accurate. Now, I have always disbelieved that figure. I've always thought it's more like 30. Now, they were also protected with armour up to 13-inch thick over their vitals. They've got huge oil-fired turbine engines, the latest thing, and they could go along, whiz along at about 24 knots. Um, uh, That's a a highly optimistic figure. Yeah, but even so, they're truly a new breed of ship that marked the demise of the battlecruiser's concept. I think it does. uh, Why? why? Because speed will be their armour too. And what else would they have besides speed as their armour? Well, they had it all. There's no longer any need to compromise protection in the search for speed. Given their speed, Beatty had long coveted these magnificent ships as an addition to the battlecruiser fleet. Now, I can think of someone who would stop him. Who would that be? I think you're referring to the fact that he was initially thwarted by Jellicoe, who pointed out that although the super dreadnoughts were fast, they were still not as fast as the battlecruisers. No, the faster battlecruisers are by this time going at 28 knots, the slower ones, 26 knots. Uh how fast with the uh, with the uh, well twenty it wavers it, it's between twenty three and twenty four knots on a good day uh, so twenty three twenty four so that's less than twenty eight then yeah just uh, making that point they'd be a bit of a drag on the the battlecruiser fleet it would sh- it would slow them down uh, uh, and uh, it would also mean that they couldn't run away if they bump if the battlecruiser fleet bumped into the grand fl- uh, high seas fleet they they they'd slow them down so you know, it. Now, Jellicoe also cherished the notion of employing the squadron as the fast wing of his battle line, able to be employed to bring a crushing concentration of fire on the vanguard or rear of the high seas fleet as required. But Beatty was undeterred and he continued to press his case. And this is... What does he say? What does he say, Gary? This is Vice Admiral David Beatty of HMS Lion. They would, in all case, be able to keep with us until the moment when we sighted the enemy. If we were then east of the enemy, blocking their retreat, the 5th Battle Squadron would be invaluable. Taking the worst case, we may be west of them and may have a long chase at full speed. After chasing for three hours, i.e. a distance of 75 miles, the 5th Battle Squadron, with their 23.5 knots, would be at most four and a half miles astern of the third battlecruiser squadron. I can imagine no better or more valuable support. Now, I wonder if we'll ever hear that again. Yeah, you might want to remember that. Yeah, this is absolutely crucial to the first stages at Jutland, and it shows what a complete dickhead beat <laughs> Um Now, Jellicoe continues to worry. Why? Why does he continue to worry? Well, he knew there could be no tastier morsel for Sheer to entrap and swallow than the 5th Battle Squadron. Yeah, absolutely. However, uh, Jellicoe's under pressure. Two pressures. One, the Admiralty wants a stronger force to cover the southern waters of the North Sea. Uh, and the, the, there's another problem in within the battlecruiser fleet. Now, this, this seems strange, but there's a problem. That, 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 what is the problem lurking in the battlecruiser fleet? Well, again, we've mentioned this earlier. There's a real need for gunnery practice by the battlecruiser fleet, and that eventually tipped the scales against. The point is, they couldn't hit the proverbial barn door. If there was a barn door sailing across the North Sea, they would sea, miss it. They'd miss it. Uh, and, and they'd miss it by a lot. And they'd decide, because they're missing, that they'll just fire at it more. Yeah, and fire. miss it more. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, uh, so they decide that there is nowhere for the, um, for the, for them to practice in, in the Firth of Forth uh, without breaking every window in, 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 in Edinburgh, which is a tempting prospect. For, uh, so it's decided that Beatty's third battlecruiser squadron 
would have to temporarily join the Grand Fleet for intensive gunnery practice. And they're going to they're going to circulate the squadrons round. That's the problem. But the third battlecruiser fleet—that's the Invincible Squadron, isn't it? Yes, it is. Now, in their absence, the battlecruiser fleet would have to be strengthened. What could? What? And you can imagine Beatty going. Yeah. Oh. And the fifth battle squadron—that's the only real option. They're the only ones who could keep up at all. So uh, <laughs> you can imagine the scene, gritting his teeth. Jellico sends them down to join Beatty at Rosyth on the twenty. 20- 2nd of May, uh, 1916. Um, now, the Queen Elizabeth didn't go with them. We always talk about the Queen Elizabeth cra- class, but uh, she's not with them. She's a book for a refit at Ross uh, Who Who does go? And let's listen to those names. Yeah, I mean, these are some really famous names here. The Barhan, Malaya, Valiant and Warspite... Never heard of it. ...were all put at Beatty's disposal until the 3rd Battle Cruiser Squadron returned. What what a bunch of names they are, and uh, what a bunch of names! Yeah, bunch of fives. Except there's only four. Now, as the British adjusted their dispositions to the Germans, the successful raid on Lowestoft on the 25th of April was seen as a triumph. Well, it's not much of a bloody triumph in my view, but there you go. Uh, now, the 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 they had a they, they keep having a go. We'll have another bash at unrestricted submarine warfare, and they'd started their latest bash, so to speak, in March 1916. That didn't last long, did it? Well, it, it started to falter already after the sinking of the uh, SS Sussex on the 24th of March. Now, that was a a passenger ferry in the in the Channel, and it had some Americans on it. Uh, yeah, once Who again, would get annoyed by that. American casualties provoked strong protests from the US ambassador. And there was only two American casualties out of 80 casualties. But, but they protest. They do. Uh, what does the German high command do? Well, it doesn't have much choice uh, in some ways. Uh, they suspend the campaign uh, and they return operational control of the submarines to the high seas fleet. Now, what does that give Shear? Well, it's a chance to finally harness all the elements of the German Navy in an effort to ensnare a portion of the Grand Fleet. To, 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 yeah, it's this great plan. They just want to yeah, knock them down a bit. Just knock them down a bit. Now, in mid-1916, the climax of the naval war approached, but Jellicoe and the Grand Fleet had achieved all but one of their war aims. Well, how so, Gary? How well, so? Let's let's go through them, shall we? The BEF and endless reinforcements had been safely deposited on the Western Front. The mailed fist of Britain had been safely delivered, yeah. There's no chance of the Germans launching a successful invasion of Britain. Well, that that I mean, you know, that's it. Yeah. The German cruiser forces had been hunted down and the Royal Navy had de facto control of the vast oceans that lay beyond the narrow confines of the North Sea. And German, well, that's it, German commercial links to the world had been severed. Neatly severed, I would say, Gary. Now, all that remained was the task of achieving victory over the high seas fleet. Now, the... the when's that going to happen well they don't know uh, because the Germans they're going to pick their moment of greatest advantage and uh, Jellicoe is not going to be drawn into battle except on his own neither side is going to be drawn into battle except on their own terms and that means uh, they just don't know one thing the men of both fleets were sure of sooner or later their targ would come. Is that like tag in the playground? The day. <gasps> the day. In May 1916, the war in the North Sea entered a dramatic new phase. Both Admiral Sir John Jellicoe and Admiral Reinhard Scheer were planning significant operations for the end of May and early June. So Jellicoe, well, he plans on 2nd of June, he's going to try and tempt Scheer and the High Seas Fleet out into the open North Sea by dangling a couple of, mm, dangle, dangle, a couple of light cruiser squadrons in front of him, uh, sweeping through the Kattegat Channel between Denmark and, and Sweden. Can you picture that? Yeah, I, I presume we're going to put a, a We'd better a map put a map of the North point. Sea up, yeah. Uh, behind them, in the Skagerrak, that's a bit to the left or west of the Kataka, uh would be a battle squadron, uh, which would be supported by uh, the battlecruiser fleet and the rest of the Grand Fleet. They're sort of trying to trap them to, to, to engage with lighter forces and then gradually it becomes heavier, suck them in. Um, uh, uh, something that's dear to our hearts, uh, airy plonks, 
Yeah, yeah in addition, seaplanes from the carrier. You said aeroplanes. From the carrier Engadine would be responsible for fending off inquisitive zeppelins. Oh wow! Now uh, Jellico, uh, he's not overly optimistic, you know, but he's going to try, and uh, so he he plans a trap. uh, So he he he's he's a feared of mines and submarines. So what does he try and use to get Shear? Well. He plans a trap made up of lines of newly laid mines and lurking submarines (laughs) across the northern exit channel from the Heligoland Bight minefields to the south of Horns Reef. Now, this plan was to be rendered stillborn, stillborn even, as sheer struck first. So that's what Jelly, but it shows that Jellico was uh, planning a positive operation. However, as you said so rightly, Gary, Shear plans first. Now, he wants, what does Shear want to do? Well, it's an echo of of Jellico. He wants to make the fullest possible use of the submarines uh, released uh, by the suspension of the unrestricted submarine campaign. So what is he going to do? Well, his first plan is to attack the northeast coast, but the bad weather means he can't get the zeppelin cover he wants. So what? So uh, he, he decides on a lesser thing. He would try and ambush British units in the Skagerrak between Norway and Denmark. This is exactly what Jellicoe was wanting him to do, in a sense, isn't it? Uh, what What does Sheehan think or know? What well, happens? He knows he's he's in the certain knowledge that Beatty and Jellicoe would rush down to intercept them. The German submarines. Some of the mine layers would be lying in ambush across the exits from Rosyth and Scarpa Flow, ready to do their worst when the fleets emerged, just as Jellicoe feared, in fact. Indeed. So, you know, uh, this is, this is it. This is, this is what's happening. Uh, now, uh, the, the idea was that in the resulting confusion of battle, Hipper would engage Beatty and draw him inexorably to his doom at the hands of Shear and the main body of the High Seas Fleet, who would be lurking in the Dogger Bank area. Uh, now, sadly, even the, 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 the weather's so bad that they can't even use the Zeppelins on this shorter range mission. So, so what would be Shear's eyes, uh, Shear and uh, Hipper's eyes? Well, it'd have to be light scouting forces. Destroyers, light cruisers. Shear's plans were, however, fatally flawed. But Germans are perfect in every way. We all know that. Well, they hadn't realised that their signals were being swiftly decoded by Room 40. And the uh, departure of numerous new boats had been noted and they'd been traced to the northern North Sea, which indicated that some major German operation was brewing. Yeah, as every new signal, German signal, is, uh, is, is received and decoded, a new piece of the jigsaw falls into place. And at 12 o'clock on 30th of May, they were able to warn Jellicoe that the high seas fleet would be putting to sea next day. Wow. Well, that, you know, that's that's useful. At 1740, the Admiralty decide they can't hesitate any longer and they order Beatty and Jellicoe to sea. Wow. At Rosyth, the battlecruiser fleet and attached 5th Battle Squadron set off to sea. Now, the image of silent power was impressive as the fleets moved through the 4th, passing Edinburgh on their short uh, on their starboard beam. And this is this is Seaman Harry Hayler of HMS Warspite, 5th Battle Squadron. Imagine, darling, if you can, a fine, though starless night, and twelve great ships steaming out of the fourth, no lights visible, and not a sound to be heard but the swish of the waves. Well, sweetheart, are you calling me darling, or was he writing to his He uh, was his writing wife? to his girlfriend. Mm. <laughs> the huge ships raised anchor manoeuvred round and then passed one by one under the fourth bridge. Have you ever seen... You've seen the fourth bridge. It, I mean, the, it's weird, isn't it, to think it was there then. The mighty super dreadnoughts, <gasps> the epitome of modern naval engineering, passed one by one beneath the proud symbol of the Victorian railway age. I do wish you'd be less purpley prose. That's probably why it's, it was there, because it's Victorian. <laughs> yes, that would be it. So th- this is what uh, midshipman Richard Fairthorne, he's on our favourite HMS. We had heard of him. Lucky HMS Warspite. Lucky HMS. Well, we didn't know it was lucky then. In fact, it already had a couple of collisions. <laughs> Sorry. It does make me laugh. Lucky Warspite. Uh, fifth Battle Squadron. So what does Richard Fairthorne say? 
At high water, we actually cleared the bridge by some 12 feet. But on approaching the bridge, it always appeared, right up to the last moment almost, that we must inevitably hit it. Hardened seafarers on the upper deck have been seen starting to turn up their collar or even disappear under cover in order to dodge the falling topmast. Then, at the last moment, the topmast seemed to oblige by dipping clear. Looking astern, it then suddenly reappeared as high as before. This phenomenon never ceased to fascinate me. You can all imagine them sort of ducking as they're going yeah, over. It's just almost, because it looks as if it's going to hit them. Fabulous. Now, all around, because there may be 12 great ships, but all around them are screening light forces. Who are they, Gary? Who are these masked light forces? We've got the first second and third light cruiser squadrons. So they, are they light cruisers? They are light cruisers. And the 13th destroyer flotilla. <gasps> are they destroyers? They are. And parts of the 1st, ninth, and 10th flotillas and their flotillas. Uh, and finally, <laughs> the seaplane carrying Engadine. Uh, the battlecruiser Australia and the Queen Elizabeth were left behind undergoing repairs in dry dock. Uh, so that's that's they're setting off from Rosyth, and meanwhile at Scapa Flow, the Grand Fleet, Gary Britain's final bulwark against the world, is simultaneously preparing to leave harbour. This is for the umpteenth time. They've been they've been on numerous sweeps across the North Sea. Uh, was there anything special to indicate this was special? If you see what I rather unimaginatively mean, no. There was nothing to indicate to the ship's crews that this was anything other than a normal sweep, but the atmosphere was pregnant with possibilities, sharpened to a point only perhaps in retrospect. Yeah, so when they wrote, they knew what happened afterwards. This is midshipman John Croom of HMS Indomitable, third battlecruiser squadron. So they're the ones who are attached to the Grand Fleet from Beatish uh, Fleet. Race, race steam for full, full speed ahead and report when ready to proceed. Although we'd received the same order many times before, it never failed to raise a thrill of wild excitement in the expectation that this time, perhaps, Der Tag, as we also called it, had dawned at last. That evening, the thrill was immensely multiplied, for everybody seemed to have a premonition that the day had really arrived. There was an almost electric atmosphere of expectation and suppressed excitement as officers and men went about the work of preparing for sea. Wow. That's a, a stirring sight to watch the men scurrying across the decks as the uh, Leviathan, Leviathans, Leviathans <laughs> stirred themselves into action. Leviathans, indeed. <laughs> and you're going to tell us once more what Midshipman John Croon witnessed. To see 30 or so of the biggest and most powerful vessels afloat spread over the calm, wide anchorage of Scapa Flow, together with their masses of attendant-like cruisers and destroyers, and to watch them as the sun set. Simultaneously, every one of them began to send up clouds of heavy smoke into the still air as the stokers got busy at the boilers. Reforced draft fans began to hum the familiar tur tune. Turn, tune, turn, tune. Turn, tune. And on deck, men were like busy ants, formed in orderly groups as the bugle calls floated across the immense harbour and set about hoisting boats and gangways and covering guns and searchlights and making the many preparations for taking the gigantic floating forts to sea. Floating forts. A lot of alliteration. Yeah. The hours, days, months and years of intensive training were clearly visible as they formed up for sea. And again, you're working so hard. This is what midshipman John Croom says. The grey monsters wheeled in succession and silent majesty, which marks the departure to sea of a perfectly, perfectly trained fleet. Finally, as the last of the long line passed us, we in turn began to swing, weighed the last few links of cable and stole stealthily away in the wake of the Grand Fleet. A more powerful exhibition of majestic strength and efficiency devised solely for the utter destruction of the enemy, it would be hard to imagine. And the impression upon my youthful mind can never be erased. His voice is still breaking on occasion. He's very young. Moreover, I was proudly conscious that I was part of this huge machine and firmly convinced that the machine was invincible, if not invulnerable. Calmly, carefully, almost unobserved in its remote Scottish fastness, the great fleet left harbour, ever hopeful that this might be the sweep that brought 
battle. And at this point, we'll take a short break. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. As commander-in-chief, Jellicoe flew his flag aboard the Iron Duke and the names of his ships reflected and perpetuated the vibrant spirit of hundreds of years of British military and naval history. Let's take it in turn. So the fourth battle squadron, that's, uh, right, I'll do one, you do the next. That's Iron Duke. The Royal Oak. Superb. Canada. Benbow. Bellerophon. Temerary. And Vanguard. So that's that. Wow, that's that's good. Let's see who gets what in this one. The first battle squadron was... uh, The Marlborough. The Revenge. Hercules. Agincourt. Colossus. Collinwood. Neptune. And St. Vincent. Temporarily attached, we've mentioned already, third battle squadron... How can I get that wrong? Battlecruiser squadron. Uh, who are they? In- invincible. Inflexible. And indomitable. That's that's us, Gary. We're indomitable in the face of criticism. I think you'll find we're inflexible. <laughs> yeah. From the uh, secondary base at Cromarty emerged the second battle squadron, composed of the King George V. Ajax. Centurion. Erin. Orion. Monarch. Conqueror. And Thunderer. Wow. I mean, there are some really famous ships there. Well, th- those are names that have rung down ever since the, uh, the, the, the 18th century. Various battles have been involved with ships that are captured from the enemy and, and their names go, oh, wow. Uh, now, what, what's around them? They've got the protective screen. So, um, they've got the first and second cruiser squadrons. That's not light cruisers, guys. No, but they did have the fourth light cruiser squadron. And then they've got the fourth, 11th and 12th destroyer flotillas. And they, 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 together they slip through, uh, through the submarine defences of Cromarty and, uh, and Scapa Flow and out into the open seas. Oh, wow. And th- now, now a point. Let's, let's, let's just think about it. What am I thinking about, Gary? I know you can always tell what I'm thinking. Oh, I better not say. No, it was white chocolate. It was, t- it was white chocolate, actually. The success of British naval intelligence in 
intelligence oh, incorrectly <laughs> divining the German plans can be judged by the fact that both Jellicoe and Beatty were at sea before 2300 on the 30th of May. What's so special about that? Well, Shear himself didn't even leave harbour until 0230 on the following morning. That's three and a half hours later. So we're actually at sea three and a half hours before the Germans. Now, this is, uh, this is uh, I think I'm going to enjoy this. Uh, this is uh, Commander Jorg von Hayes of the SMS Durflinger. That's first scouting group. That's part of, uh, part of von Hipper's uh, uh, battlecruiser fleet, if you like. Uh, what, do, what, does, what does he say? We had spent the night at anchor in the Schillig Roads off the entrance to the Jedebusen. Ahead of us stretched the small cruisers and some flotillas of destroyers. It was a beautiful, clear night, which soon gave place to a splendid morning. The sun rose magnificently, covered the sea with its golden rays, and soon showed us the picture of the whole high seas fleet, proceeding to meet the enemy. Always a wonderful sight, and one never to be forgotten. Far ahead of us steamed the small cruisers in line ahead, surrounded by a cordon of destroyers steaming ceaselessly around the cruisers, on the lookout for enemy submarines, like dogs round a flock of sheep. He was not related to Richthofen at all. Now, now uh, we're, we're now on to a, a really, we're going to do the same. That's the first scouting group. That's, uh, that's uh, Hipper's newly commissioned flagship, the Lutzau. What, what else? Well, there was also the Seidlitz, the Moltke, Derflinger itself, and von der Tan. Right. So behind them comes the High Seas Fleet. Now, this is a real hostage to fortune here. Uh, that the first, well, there's the third battle squadron. Uh, that's the Koenig, Grosse Kur first, Comprince Willem, Mark Graf, Kaiser, Kaiserin, Prince Regent Luitpold, and uh, Scheer's flagship, the Friedrich de Grosse. Behind them come the first battle squadron. That's the Ostfriesland, Thuringen, Heligoland, Oldenburg, Posen, Rhineland, Nassau, and Westfalen. Now, then something that the British don't have because Scheer brings his second battle squadron. Now, why am I why am I saying what what? Well, what? they're pre-breadnoughts. Uh, pre-dreadnoughts. Pre pre-dreadnoughts. Pre so that's before bread was invented. <laughs> They're pre-dreadnoughts. Right. And they brought up the rear of the line. And they consisted of the Deutschland. The Hessen. Pommern. Hanover. Schlesen. And Schleswig-Holstein. Schleswig-Holstein. Oh, God's sake, I thought I was a good guy. <laughs> now, th this is weird. Now, of course, they increased. They've got a load of 12-inch guns. or oh, Yeah, 12-inch, I think. They, they do increase the total broadside weight, but they slow them down because instead of 21 or 20 or 21 knots, how fast do they go? Well, their overall speed is around 18 knots. Why do you, why do you think, I haven't put this in the notes, why do you think Shear, if you'd been listening earlier, listeners, not Gary, Gary never listens. I think you mean that Shear had been swayed by sentiment. And what was that sentiment? The old shippy sentiment. Yeah, he'd commanded them, hadn't he? He uh, When the war started, he'd been in command of them. So it, do you think he was right to bring them? Probably not. Well, I think not, really. But we'll find out. Let's see if they all get home yes, safely. Spoilers. Spoilers, yeah. Now, uh, so the, the, as, as, uh, as um, uh, Von Hayes said, they're surrounded by a protective screen like cruisers. That, that's the second and fourth scouting group and seven flotillas of destroyers. Uh, let's add them up. Now, just quickly add them up in your head. Now, without thinking, quick, quick. Uh, well, at his disposal, we had 16 dreadnoughts, eight pre-dreadnoughts, five battle cruisers, 11 light cruisers, and 61 destroyers. And what did he have against him? Uh, I'm having more trouble. Uh, <laughs> I've got to add up three lots. Can you? Well, 28, Jericho, 28 dreadnoughts. Yeah. How many battle cruisers? Nine. Eight cruisers. That's heavier cruisers. 26 light cruisers and 73 destroyers. Not a big margin of destroyers, notes. But 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 uh, not outnumbered, but not a big margin compared to the others. How many destroyers do we have nowadays? Uh, one. Exactly. 73 destroyers. Yeah, 73 destroyers. We don't actually have one, but the point is significantly less than 73. Well, there, let's say now it's one, two, three, and then, then it was one, two, three, lots. <laughs> um, right, the ground fleet 
clearly outnumbers at high sea speed in every department that really matters, uh, except pre-dreadnoughts. Um, but but what what what? Uh, they they they're not being outnumbered in the destroyers. But uh, uh, but does. Jellicoe get the reinforcements he was expecting of the destroyers from the Harwich force. We better deal with this now because we'll never remember to mention it again. No, it, it, whilst he got the, the destroyers wrong, he was right uh, with his scepticism that Harwich force would ever be able to join him in battle. Well, in the confusion of battle, yeah, because the Harwich force was under, well, it was under Reginald Turret, uh, and they were ordered by the Admiralty to remain in harbour until the Admiralty was certain that Shear. Uh, was not launching some desperate thrust towards the channel ports and the Dover Straits. He was thus left it, you know, with just sitting about in harbour with his uh, five light cruisers and 18 destroyers, and of course with the pre dreadnoughts, uh, which I uh, failed to mention earlier. As now, the fleets deployed into the North Sea, the intentions of the two commanders can be quite simply stated Bagsai Jellico, Bagsai Jellico. I am Jellico. I aim to defeat the high seas fleet. If I can bring it to battle without exposing my fleet to the risk of serious losses from mines and torpedoes. I prefer the maintenance of the current strategic status quo to fighting in anything but favourable circumstances. That's me. What do you want, Mr Von Scheer? Well, I intend to draw detached elements of the Grand Fleet most probably the battlecruiser fleet, into a trap where I could achieve and exploit a local superiority. Only when the two fleets have been equalised will I risk an out-and-out fleet action. Wow. Right, so bear that in mind, because eventually we're going to be looking at, oh, bloody one, then, you bastards. Yeah, uh, and and uh, you have to look at what the aims were if you're trying to decide what happens. Right now, uh, so Shear, his first right. I mean, just as the sh- fleet set sail, Shear's trap must snap shut. <laughs> no, it's an early disappointment for him because the submarine ambush that he'd set around the British bases proved a damp squib. Well, there were 18 German submarines. Uh, surely they'll begin the process of attrition to gradually bring down the, the Grand Sea d- down to the size of the highest fleet. 18 submarines. Yes, but his hopes are dashed. The new minefields laid by submarine mine layers were ineffective. Uh, uh, would you like to tell that to the crew of the Hampshire and Kitchener? Once the battlecruiser fleet and Grand Fleet You're had left harbour, they simply disappeared into the vastness of the seas. Yes, because the seas are big and 18 isn't many. So when you get... And we've stood and looked at the sea occasionally. It's big, isn't it, Gary? Yes, it's everywhere. And the other thing is, what happens to Hampshire? Sinks. It runs on one of the... A bit later, three or four days later, runs onto one of the mines. So that is down to that. And Kitchener, have you heard of Kitchener? Uh, Yeah, he's got arms. It's Kitchener's arms. That's a sop to our friends at the Great War Group. It's got legs as well. Worse still, the German submarine wireless intelligence reports sent to Shear were positively misleading, giving yeah. no idea that the Grand Fleet was out in full so strength. They just report that they've seen a couple of ships here, a couple of ships there. They don't say that they've got... Well, that's because that's all they saw. So Shear is completely oblivious to the fact that Jellicoe set sail. Um, right. What arrangements had Jellicoe made with BE? Well, I'll better do this bit because it's incredibly complex, Gary. Jellicoe's going to rendezvous with BT about 90 miles off the entrance of the Skagerrak. That's between Denmark and the other place. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> now, the intention was the two ple- fleets, pleats, the two fleets would reach their designated uh, points some 16 hours, ma- 69 miles apart at 1400 on the 31st of May. So that's next day. That's, that's from when they, they set sail. Um, if there was no form of uh, sign of life from the German high seas fleet, what, was, uh, what, what were they to do? Well, Beatty would then join forces with Jellicoe for a final sweep towards the Horns Reef sector, which was north of the Heligoland 
Yeah, it's where it's facing. It's near getting towards Wilmshaven. Now, but but obviously it's just the minefields. So they're not going to go into it or near it. Uh, I, I'll, I'll can, can I explain uh, what, what Admiral John Jellicoe says? He remember he's aboard the HMS Iron Duke. He says I felt no anxiety anxiety in regard to the advanced position of the force under Sir David Beatty, supported as it was by four ships of the Fifth Battle Squadron, as this force was far superior in gunpowder to the first scouting group and the. That's a German Valkyrie. And the speed of the slowest ship was such as to enable it to keep out of the range of superior enemy forces. So if the high seas fleet, the dreadnoughts turned up, they could get away. As the great fleet pounded across the North Sea, the routine drudgery of shipboard life at sea commenced. Yeah, you can imagine it. There's all the jobs to be done, the usual cleaning. Hey, polish that, sailor. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the specialist personnel had their intricate duties to perform, combined with endless checks to make uh, sure, to make sure that everything, everything was in working order. Yeah, so all the gunny things and the radar, not radar, for God's sake, Peter. <laughs> They're all the gunny things, that, 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 just everything worked. That's now, to the men in the lower deck, this was just one more sweep into the North Sea. Another part of the endless routine. It's a bit like... Uh, <laughs> Like recording a weekly podcast, really. There was nothing to indicate otherwise. It was indeed a pleasant day for a cruise. What you got to say about it, uh, Midshipman John Ouvry on HMS Tiger, first battle cruiser squadron with BT? There was nothing much going on, so the hands were given a make and mend. That means that apart from those employed in keeping the ship steaming, we could have a DOS down, have a lie up. And that afternoon in the sun, it was nice and warm. I had a nice little sleep on the quarter deck. We didn't know anything was around. No excitement at all. Yeah, uh, now the, the 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 morale's high in the the, the ground fleet the, and the battle cruiser fleet. They they they've, they've trained hard for this, haven't they? They've they've learned a lot and and they've got they accept that what the British public expects of them. Uh, um, now, uh, Admiral Beatty's battle cruisers—they're optimistic. Why are they optimistic? Well, they've got they're taste of German blood at the battles Gary. of Heligoland, Bight and Dogger Bank. Confidence reigned supreme, and they fully believed that the Royal Navy had a natural right to untrammeled victory. And this is Flag Captain Alfred Chatfield aboard HMS Lion. We were ready for battle, hopeful and confident, under a leader in whom every officer, petty officer and man had complete confidence. We considered the battlecruisers the spear point of the Grand Fleet, like the cavalry of a great army. And behind us we had that vast, powerful fleet of battleships, which, if they could get into action, would have little difficulty in annihilating the enemy. Spear point, spear point. Oh, spear, yes, yes. Now, 11.30... The second battle squadron, which had been stationed in Cromarty, uh, linked up with the Grand Fleet, enabling it to shake down into its final cruising order of six tight columns of four dreadnoughts. So the six, so put your handy out in front of you, Gary. Yes. And then one hand finger next to it. Yes. And that's what they look like, six of them going like that. Hairy. (laughs) Now those six tight columns. And slightly pudgy was screened on all sides from attack. It was shortly after this that things started to go wrong. What could have gone wrong? Well, in London, the experts of Room 40 received a visit... Is this the decoding experts? Yeah. The geeks? They received a visit from the Director of Naval Operations, Captain Thomas Jackson, who had little sympathy for his civilian boffins and no respect for their acquired expertise. And he made the classic mistake of asking a specific question which would not, in fact, elicit the information he actually required. Yeah, this is interesting. You must have done this sometimes with your uh, junior employees at Transport for London. You asked the wrong question. Uh, And he asks where the wireless directional stations had placed Shear's wireless call sign DK. And uh, he receives an answer. What's that answer? Uh, Wilhelmshaven. And he didn't ask any further questions, and he turned on his heel and left. And this was extremely unfortunate, to say the very least. Yeah, that, that's because, and this is a cunning 
cunning ruse, worthy of Blackadder or rather Baldrick himself. When Shear went to sea, he transferred his wireless DK call sign to a shore establishment at Wilmshaven and adopted another call sign while he was at sea. Now, this is designed for what for? Why? Well, to put directional stations off the scent. The Room 40 staff, they'd already worked that out uh, after their experiences during previous German excursions into the North Sea. But Jackson did not know this vital piece of information. And the experts in Room 40 did not, or more likely didn't have the opportunity to enlighten them. It wasn't, he- it wasn't a friendly approach, not like yourself. He was, he was a complete bastard. And he didn't say, where's Shear? He said... Where's DK call sign? And I have to admit, if you've got a boss of that nature, a bastard, if you're asked something like that, they'll they'll shout at you if you give them extra information normally. So you just say, well, Sarvin, sir. It, therefore, Jackson reported that Shear was still in harbour. Rear Admiral Henry Oliver, the Chief of War Staff at the Admiralty, he had no reason to doubt this information, and he therefore sent an entirely misleading signal to Jellicoe and Beatty at 12.30 on the 31st of May. This is a... This is... This is uh, the technical term is clusterfuck, isn't it? Yes, and this is Rear Admiral Henry Oliver of the Admiralty. No definite news of the enemy... They made all preparations for sailing early this morning. It was thought fleet had sailed, but directionals placed the flagship flagship in the Jade at 11.10am GMT. Apparently, they have been unable to carry out air reconnaissance, which has delayed them. Right, so, that what, 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 what must Jellicoe think? When he gets that? Well, he's clearly being told that the high seas fleet was in harbour and that whatever Shear had been planning had been delayed or maybe even cancelled. The result of that, if you're thinking, so he thinks, well, I'll continue to head, you know, towards the rendezvous point with with Beatty. But is this now a sort of active service action at any moment or is this what? No, it's changed from an interception to just one more sweep. Just, 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 just routine. Yeah. The Grand Fleet continued at a mean speed of 15 knots, but carried out several inspections of passing neutral ships, which might have been forgone in circumstances of greater urgency. Meanwhile, Beatty carries on at 19 knots, which is a higher cruise. So Faster. He's, he's going, he's getting further away, so there's a bigger distance. Oh, dear, oh, dear. Uh, now... This is all wrong because actually, in direct contradiction to that stupid bloody Admiralty signal, the high seas fleet is at sea. Uh, in front, uh, were the, they've got the light cruiser screen of the second scouting group. Behind them, they've got the battle cruisers of Hipper's first scouting group. 50 miles behind Hipper, there's the high seas fleet, uh, covered by the fourth scouting group. Uh, now, aboard the Durflinger, what a great name for a ship. Um, that's second in line in the first scouting force. So it's a battle cruiser. It's under Hipper. The gunnery commander takes a well-earned rest and ponders his future. And this is Commander Jorg von Hayes. I went to my cabin, laid down for a siesta, watched the blue rings from my cigar and dreamed of battle and victory. If only it came to gunnery action this time. My whole career seemed so incomplete. So much of a failure if I did have at least one opportunity of feeling in battle on the high seas what fighting was really like. Blow for blow, shot for shot, that was what I wanted. I was possessed by a burning desire to engage our proud Derflinger in action with an English battlecruiser worthy of her. Day and night this thought never left me. I pictured to myself how... And on outpost duty or on one of our reconnaissances, we came across an English battlecruiser. How the Deerflinger joined action and thus a gigantic gun duel developed while we both tore along at delirious speed. I could see how every salvo from the enemy was replied to by one from us, how the fight became ever faster and more furious, and how we struggled together like two mighty warriors who both knew well enough that only one of us will survive. In my dreams, I saw the English gunnery officer get his periscope onto my ship. I heard his English orders and my own. 
This thought of such a contest between great ships intoxicated me, and my imagination painted pictures of monstrous happenings. This is what uh, it's like for you when you're sat daydreaming. I often think of you and monstrous happenings. Yeah, well, now the Germans have every intention of provoking a, a clash with a, a, a portion, not all, a small and discreet portion of the Grand Fleet or the Battlecruiser fleet. Uh, have they any idea that Room 40's first revealed and then obfuscated uh, their movements? Do, do they know what's happening? No. no. Unaware that they were heading directly towards each other, the scene was set for battle when the fleets collided in the North Sea. Now, by 1330, Beatty had disposed his forces so that the second battlecruiser squadron lay some two miles to the northeast of the Lion. That's, uh, that's leading the first battlecruiser squadron. Now, that two miles, is, is that significant? No, uh, not really. Uh, where's the uh, fifth battle squadron? Because, uh, uh, you know, uh, we, we know they're going to be very close by. Well, they're some five miles north-northwest of the Lion. What? Five miles Five miles. What does that... Um, so they're quite a way away, aren't they? Yeah, and that failure to concentrate his forces made a hollow mockery of the earlier claim that he'd made to Jellicoe. Now, do you remember these words, Pete? This is Vice Admiral David Beatty. Is this a repeat? Yeah, this is repeating his words. Taking the worst case, we may be west of them and may have a long chase at full speed. After chasing for three hours i.e. a distance of 75 miles, the 5th Battle Squadron with their 23.5 knots would be at the most 4.5 miles astern. Hang on. And how, how far... Just in normal cruising together... Yeah, so there's no turning, nothing... It's How far behind cruising. are they? They're already worse than his worst case. They're already 5 miles. Wow. And they haven't turned. Now, uh, it's, it's possible he intended to, to close up his forces... Uh, if they if they approach an area where the German fleet was likely to be, but that misleading ta- telegram from the Admiralty hasn't bloody helped matters, has it? Uh, no, what's argue- he thinking about? What is he thinking about? Well, arguably, it turned his mind more towards the mundane practicalities of the junction with the Grand Fleet and the imminent exchange of the Fifth Battle Squadron for the Third Battle Cruiser Squadron. To, they were going to get the Third Battle Cruiser Squadron's had its gunnery; it's going to swap over again. Whatever the reason, it was to prove a grave error and have a significant impact on the course of the looming battle. Now, ahead of Beatty, uh, to the east, therefore, was the screen. Uh, uh, That's the uh, first light cruiser squadron with the second and third light cruiser squadrons. And they're covering together the approaches from the south and southeast. Now, at 1358, this is precise, Gary, although actually they've no idea where they are on the map. That's one amusing thing. Um, They're they're, they're approaching the designated rendezvous point. And what does BT do? He signals his ships to be ready to make the turn at 1450 to the northeast. 1415. Sorry, 1415 to the northeast to move towards a junction with the Grand Fleet. So Mm. where's Hipper? Where's he? Is he in sight? Well, by this time, he's pursuing a northerly course some 50 miles to the east of Beatty. And as their light cruiser screens were still some 16 miles apart, both admirals were in total ignorance of each other's presence. And if Beatty's going to turn north, they're going to... So there can't have been a battle of Jutland. It must all be in our imagination. Uh, what, What happened, Gary? What happened? How come if the 16 miles apart, at best... And they're about, we're about to turn away from them. How come? What happens, Gary? What? 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 What happens, Gary? I'm, I'm on a tentacle. Well, you'll just have to tune in next week or whenever we get round to doing it and find out in our next thrilling instalment. Dan, dan, dan. Right. Uh, before we go, we'd just like to say thank you to all of those who bought our book. What's our book called, Gary? Laugh or Cry. We thank you very much. One thing we would ask, though, is we've only got 17 reviews on Amazon and we put all those little slips in the books and we remember those slips that you lovingly put in every book. Yeah. And uh, how, did, would we like more reviews? Yes, we would. We'd like more, particularly if they're positive. Yeah. And we'd like to say thank you to all those who've done it because we really are grateful. But if a few more of you can, uh, can, you know, get your finger out. 
<laughs> and and, and it, they don't have to be long reviews, do they? They just have to be for five stars, preferably. They can be shorter than this speech you're making. Yes, that's true. Oh, well, cheers, Gary. Cheers, Pete. Thanks for listening to the show. Blah, blah, blah. If you'd like to support blah, us, blah, you can now buy us a coffee. Blah, blah, Visit www.buymeacoffee.com backslash PGMH. Or visit www.blahblahblahblahblah. And we'd be jolly grateful. Cheers. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?